You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to Yahweh involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from twenty years old up to sixty years old shall be fifty shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be thirty shekels. If the person is from five years old up to twenty years old, the valuation shall be for a male twenty shekels and for a female ten shekels. If the person is from a month old up to five years old, the valuation shall be for a male five shekels of silver and for a female, the valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if the person is sixty years old or over, then the valuation for a male shall be fifteen shekels and for a female ten shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. If the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to Yahweh, all of it that he gives to Yahweh is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to Yahweh, then he shall stand the animal before the priest. And the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to Yahweh, the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to Yahweh part of the land that is his possession, then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at fifty shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, the valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of Jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. And if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth to its valuation price, and it shall remain his. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed any more. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be a holy gift to Yahweh, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. If he dedicates to Yahweh a field that he has bought, which is not a part of his possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of the valuation for it up to the year of Jubilee, 
and the man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to Yahweh. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to whom the land belongs as a possession. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty geras shall make a shekel. But a firstborn of animals, which as a firstborn belongs to Yahweh, no man may dedicate. Whether ox or sheep, it is Yahweh's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth to it. Or, if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to Yahweh, of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to Yahweh. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is Yahweh's. It is holy to Yahweh. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to Yahweh. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 616 of this podcast. Today is Friday. Thank God for that. I don't mean to say that in a glib or irreverent way. Truly do. Thank God for Fridays and the approach of weekends and rest. Sometimes it's all you can do. You just, you, you, you just work all week and you say, I... I'm trying to get to the weekend and then I will regather my thoughts and recollect myself and catch up on things. I'm looking forward to that this weekend. It's been a rainy, rainy week, but in any event, that was Leviticus chapter 27. Laws about vows being declared by God to Moses to tell the people and not valuing everybody equally. How is that? How, how, how does that strike you? Not everybody has the same value. Is that upsetting? Is that surprising? Again, let's just reiterate, let's say it more slowly so that we appreciate that this is from God. Not everybody is equal here in the first part of Leviticus chapter 27. Not everybody is equal. There's just no way around it. Uh, You have this idea of vows being made, right? Vows being made to dedicate someone to helping to support the sanctuary. And actually, I had to reach out a little bit here and look at some commentary because 
I don't readily understand what is to what's being talked about here. I just I don't readily understand this. I'll just be honest. But see, admitting that I don't readily understand this is part of how I can understand it. I want to understand it. But if I were to say I do understand what I don't understand, that would well that that would limit me, right? That would limit me in my ability to find out because if somebody saw me trying to figure it out after having said, oh, I understand it. Yeah. Then you would say, well, you were lying when you said you understood it. So I'm not going to lie. And I'm also not going to just not search this out. I'm going to admit, I don't understand what this means. I think most of us wouldn't understand what this means at first glance, but we should understand it. There has to be a important lesson here as to God's will, his purpose for his people, Israel, at least, but then also his people generally, the people that he has created generally. The church now is God's people. And the Jew first, absolutely. Paul writes that in the New Testament. The Jew first. So if we have a Gentile in myself or yourself, and then a fellow Christian is Jewish, it would seem, to my way of reading it, unless I'm misunderstanding that too, uh, it would seem to my way of reading that even there, there's not going to be an equality in the sense that many people today assume equality is the highest value. Equality is appropriate in certain contexts, as in equality before the law. But what does that mean? Does the equality before the law mean that when God tells Moses to speak to the people and say this to them, if anyone makes a special vow to Yahweh involving the valuation of persons, then you are equally unequal, <laughs> right? A male from 20 to 60 is valued at 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. 50 shekels, a female is valued at 30. 30 is 60% of 50. Quick math there. Just double the value of the man and the woman, and you've got 60 versus 100. The same ratio applies when this is someone from one month old up to five years old. The male is worth five shekels, the female is worth three shekels. Over 60, then the value is 15 shekels versus 10 shekels. And what this is really getting at, according to the commentary at logos.com, what this is really getting at is sustaining the sanctuary. So here's the additional tab that opened up when I hit the button at the bottom of the page, explain this verse. Verse one, Yahweh spoke to Moses. Okay, that's pretty clear. I understand that. Let's move on. Verses two to eight establishes the equivalent value in silver for persons of either gender according to age, people who vowed themselves or a member of their family to sanctuary service probably paid the required contribution, though on occasion they may have actually served at the tabernacle, but this seems unlikely since the Levites filled this role. 
This practice of exchanging a set amount of silver for the life of a person is comparable to the custom of redeeming the firstborn, Numbers 18.16. The values established in this passage may derive from the typical price such a person would have if sold as a slave. So that's a possibility. But the prices for slaves varied according to market conditions. This law creates a fixed value and appears to base that value on stereotypical expectations of the time about a person's potential economic contribution. A man in his prime is valued nearly twice as much as a woman of the same age bracket because in a manual labor economy, a man has been viewed as being able to generate more value. Now, there are some things here just within verses 2 to 8 commentary at logos.com. There are some things here in the commentary that are worth drawing out and paying more attention to. One, it's not just true of the man in his prime. It's also true of the young person and the old person. So the young one-month-old child, one month to five years of age, is generating how much manual labor compared to a girl of the same age, one month to five years old. Not a whole lot, right? Up to the age of five, I think boys and girls alike typically are not super productive. As males get older, they get stronger typically, and even from a young age. Males are going to be more aggressive, more energetic in some ways, stronger and bigger bodied a little bit, sure, but the ratio stays the same. Actually, the bigger difference is not between the male and the female up to five years of age, but between the one month to five years range child and an adult from 20 to 60. There's a ratio of 10 to one from the boy to the man or from the girl to the woman. And then in older age, the sliding scale bounces back. Now, the older person, 60 years and up, is still valued at three times what the young person is. The elderly is still valued at three times what the child is, but 30% of what someone in their prime is. The elderly man is valued at 30% of what the younger man is. The elderly woman is valued at 30% of what the younger woman is. And so equality, when it comes to our day, and we're trying to think rightly about what is fair, that word is very loaded. We should understand that. And as Christians, we shouldn't come to the biblical text or a conversation about pay, let's say, for instance. We shouldn't come to these things with a preconceived notion, a prepackaged extra biblical idea of fairness and find fault with God, for instance, or necessarily assume that there's some funny business going on outside of the Bible in our current economic situation if men make more than women typically. One thing I've noticed when you look at the stats, let's say for IQ, men Men, on average, may not have the same IQ 
as women on average. And what I mean by that is you take your typical male and your typical male may not be as intelligent as your typical female. That's a possibility. Sure. I'm willing to admit that. I've heard that. But the upper range for male IQ is higher than the upper range for female IQ. And on the other end, the lower range for male IQ is lower than the lower range for female IQ. What all explains that? Mm, I, I don't know. I, I don't understand. There's another thing that I don't understand. I don't understand what all factors into that, but it is interesting. It is interesting to note because on the male side, you say, well, men are typically more aggressive and perhaps that's why sometimes they do really, really well, whereas the typical woman would be more cautious. And more men being more aggressive, sometimes they do very poorly. They take risks and those risks work out very badly. Sometimes those risks pay off and they end up at the very upper range of not just pay, but also fame and notoriety and IQ. They really drive themselves. And that aggression, that testosterone fuels achievement, fuels accomplishment. But here's the flip side. Here's the other side of the equation for men. Being really aggressive, being risk takers, if you swing for the fences and you completely miss the ball, then when you're on the lower range, you might be behind a lot of women, most women even. And that's where we get into situations where men are uh, incels is what we start calling them today, involuntary celibates, which is to say that those men uh, can't seem to find a woman. They are not desirable as mates. They are not attractive. They are not, if you will, sexy. They have not accomplished much of anything professionally or socially, academically. They don't have material wealth. They are not handsome. They are not well-spoken. They're not charming. They're not confident. They're not selling it. They're not sexy. And so they are just by themselves. But on the upper range, on the other end of the spectrum for men, that aggression sometimes pays off. And when it consistently pays off and it makes them mentally sharper and more confident and more decisive and success builds on success, they can accomplish quite a lot relative their female peers. So one thing we have to watch out for is when it comes to the women, when it comes to the ladies, short of injecting testosterone into them and androgenizing all of us, which we don't want to do, which is a really, really bad idea, just humanly speaking, but then it's a very dangerous idea in terms of our relationship to God. It's an abominable thing that is done in our day. It's just sanitized, as it were, because we say that it's science or it's a medical procedure, but it's an abominable thing, and God is not mysterious about that. Short of injecting testosterone into women, the only thing that is happening in this day is we're assuming a standard of fairness that is extra-biblical 
coming to the biblical text and extra biblical current situations in the economy, in social spheres, in our culture. And then we're telling women, you should really drive yourself. You should really push to accomplish and to get to that C-suite office. Do women want that? If they don't, then we say that's society's problem. Society has limited them, and that's why they're not accomplishing at the same rates that the men are. But that's just not true. That's biologically not proven by a close examination of men and women's potential. Even just from an athletic standpoint, a very mediocre male athlete, if he announces that he's transgender consistently, will beat out the very best athletes in the world in whatever sport we're talking about in the women's category. If he comes out as a woman and switches over to the women's league, all of a sudden he's shattering records and he's woman of the year and he's not just a good woman. He's not. We're not going to just say that he's a woman. We're not going to just say that he is a good woman. We're going to say he's the best woman who has ever lived. In fact, he's a better woman than all these other women. So even there, ironically, you can't get away from men trying to be competitive. So even when a man is a woman, he's trying to be the best woman that there ever was. Whereas actually, women, typically, the reason why their IQ ratios are somewhere more towards the middle, they kind of congregate, they kind of coalesce into more of a median is because of the effects of the woman's hormones. The woman's biochemistry, brain chemistry is different than men's. And so women are typically more risk averse and also more likely to seek security and provision in the consensus. And when you put a woman into the context of marriage and you give her a husband to be her head, and that husband is loving her like Christ loved the church, well, then what you have is a safe place for her to be conforming to the expectations of the household and of the head of her household, who is her husband. You have a safe place for her to express that and to rest. And meanwhile, you have an influence who can be a helper suitable for him if he is really aggressive and he is really a hard charger and he really likes to take he, he likes to take risks and he likes to try his hand at various ventures and opportunities she can be the one to help moderate or advise or say hey i'm watching your six did you consider this and he all excited by the possibilities if he doesn't have a help meet suitable for him to say hey did you consider this well, he might be very brave or he might be very foolish. We'll see. We will decide after we see whether he is successful or not, whether he was very brave or very reckless. And that's typically, that, that's typically the way that that shakes out socially. And then you get people who are trying to score bonus points off of either outcome saying, oh, yeah, I knew he would, I knew he would do well. No, you didn't. If you had known he was going to do well on the front end, you would have backed him more on the front end. Or when somebody fails, they'll say, ah, yeah, I knew that wasn't going to work. No, you didn't. If you had known that it wasn't going to work, you would have spoken up more strongly on the front end. 
to say, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. And here's why. Let's try this instead. But a woman who is attached to her husband will say, hey, honey, what about such and such? And if her husband is wise and if he's loving his wife well, and if he's humble and not just brave, then he's going to say, oh, yeah, what about that? Hmm. (laughs) But then all of that is somewhat far afield from what we're talking about here in the main with Leviticus chapter 27. Leviticus 27 is first and foremost about dedication to the sanctuary. What is the price? What is the value? And really that's the word that we use even today. And what are we dedicating ourselves to when we talk about value? So I work, for instance, not as full-time vocational ministry. I work in the oil and gas industry. And with so many years of experience in automation in particular, I know roughly a range for what my hours are worth or what a year of my labor is worth to most companies. And there's a range, right? It's not a fixed standard like in Leviticus 27, but there's a range. And I know generally within that range, if somebody offers me a job, what I might take and what is just totally ridiculous. Nah, no, no. And also I know if it's a higher number outside of a certain range that, well, okay, maybe, (laughs) maybe there are some things that they're not telling me on the front end about roles and responsibilities and scope and what the dynamic is there. You know, I, I probably need to read the fine print before I sign on to this. There's probably a little bit more to it than just that job description that I was emailed. Well, so also my wife, my wife is a woman, obviously, and a mother, and she's homeschooling, and she prepares the food in most cases. Although she's happy to teach and to instruct our children, particularly our sons because they're older, how to make the food so that they learn how to cook, she stays home. And if something were to happen to me and she were to go out into the economy tomorrow without any of my experience, would she make anything approaching what I make per hour? Would she be able to do my job, in other words? Well, the simple answer is no, because her life to this point, her you know, her 20s and 30s have not been spent like mine, 11 years working in oil and gas. She doesn't have that built up to give her the capacity. Now, if she had, then I'm sure she would be able to get a job doing what I do. And she would be a rarity and with companies trying to be diverse, equitable, equitable and uh, inclusive, a lot of companies would say, yeah, absolutely. We want to hire a woman in particular, especially, especially if she is a woman of color, we want to hire her. The more intersectional, the better. But such as it is, most women don't get into this line of work. Most women don't get into this industry unless they're going to work in more of an admin role. And that'll be something interesting to watch for in the coming years as AI is expected to eliminate a lot of admin jobs in particular. We are expecting more jobs that are automation-related, fewer jobs that are able to be done by AI. And so, in general, I think we do well as we are 
trying to wrap our minds around how best to think about God and ourselves and one another and labor and economics and politics and justice and purpose and belonging, we do well to think about passages like Leviticus 27 and what we shouldn't necessarily assume. If the value in silver is tied to how much economic output, how much productive output somebody is expected to be able to provide, and this is on average a ratio of two to one males to females in their age group, in their same age range, well, perhaps we should be encouraging more young women to get married and prep themselves for being wives and mothers. And we should be teaching our sons, more of our sons, to be prepared to be good husbands and fathers and to do good work and to be worth their 30 pieces of silver. And by that, I mean their wives because the woman is worth 30 pieces of silver and the man is worth 50 pieces of silver. And so when he goes out there and he expends himself and he can do a lot more work than a woman that he's going to marry typically can, he has a more uh, generous dose of physical strength, endurance, aggression. If it's 60% in the case of his wife, he should really be the one out there working and not staying home while she goes to work in most cases. Now, if he has a terrible accident he becomes disabled or there's an illness and he literally can't, well, that's a different thing, but there's still a rule. If that's an exception to the rule, well, there's still a rule that is meaningful that we need to be ordering our homes, our families, our communities according to. And that rule is not. Everybody's equal no matter what, no matter how old you are or young you are or whether you're a man or a woman. And oh, by the way, for all of the people, all of the so-called progressive Christians, all the liberal Christians who want to dabble in transgenderism, note here, as with so many passages, there is no third category. There's not a male category, a female category, and a non-binary category. There is no such thing. It's male or female or else you're lying. And that goes for the allies as well. Male and female, he created them in the beginning. But let's move on. On a fun note, my daughter Evelyn was talking with me the other night about something she had been reading, talking about weasels, I think it was, and the scientific name for weasels was mentioned, and she was trying to remember what it was. And it was a funny story that I think got cut short because as she was talking, I decided to look up the Wikipedia for weasels. Like, oh, okay, is it uh, Mustelidae? Is that right? Mustelids? Weasels? Mustela? That's the genus. The family is Mustelidae. And that turned into a rabbit trail or a weasel trail, I suppose, as the case may be. But then... As I was reading through this just a little bit, to her, something else happened. She got distracted, ran off, did something else. I never did hear what the funny story actually was, uh, which is unfortunate. I need to ask her to remind me. But once I was looking at the Wikipedia for weasels, I found myself thinking 
You know, why is it? Now, speaking of comparing various people, various personality types to animals, where did it come from that we started calling people weasels? I was telling my wife about somebody that uh, I've had some interactions with who I think is being, shall we say, two-faced or less than completely honest. And I referred to this person in talking with my wife as a weasel. And then this conversation came up with my daughter and I'm looking at the Wikipedia article and I'm thinking, well, how did it, how did it come to be that we would call some people weasels? What's up with that? Well, the Wikipedia for weasels, let's just start there. I, I don't know the answer to the question that I'm asking necessarily, but the Wikipedia says that genus Mustela includes the least weasels, which is, that's a new one. I mean, maybe next time you're in an argument with somebody and they're being less than fully honest, or you catch them in a lie or being duplicitous, maybe that's what you call them. Don't just call them a weasel. Call them a least weasel, because that is a category. Uh, Least weasels, polecats, stoats, ferrets, European mink, all are classified as mustela. Members of this genus are small, active predators with long and slender bodies and short legs. The family mustelidae, or mustelids, which also includes badgers, otters, and wolverines is often referred to as the weasel family. In the UK, the term weasel usually refers to the smallest species, the least weasel, the smallest carnivoran species. Least weasels vary in length from six and three quarters to eight and a half inches, females being smaller than males and usually have red or brown upper coats and white bellies. Some populations of some species molt to a wholly white coat in winter. They have long, slender bodies, which enable them to follow their prey into burrows. Their tails may be from 34 to 52 millimeters, one and a quarter to two inches long. Weasels feed on small mammals and have from time to time been considered vermin because some species took poultry from farms or rabbits from commercial warrens They do, on the other hand, eat large numbers of rodents. Their range spans Europe, North America, much of Asia, and South America, and small areas in North Africa. The English word weasel was originally applied to one species of the genus, the European form of the least weasel. This usage is retained in British English, where the name is also extended to cover several other species of the genus. However, in technical discourse and in American usage, the term weasel can refer to any member of the genus, or to the genus as a whole, if I scroll on down to cultural meanings or cultural depictions of weasels, uh, weasels have been assigned a variety of cultural meanings, it turns out. In Greek culture, a weasel near one's house is a sign of bad luck, even evil, especially if there is in the household a girl about to be married, since the animal, based on its Greek etymology, was thought to be an unhappy bride who was transformed into a weasel and consequently delights in destroying wedding dresses. In Macedonia, however, where Alexander the Great was from, weasels are generally seen as an omen of good fortune. So that's curious. They're just just opposite there. Good luck? Nah, we think bad luck. Bad luck? Nah, we think good luck. In early modern Mecklenburg, Germany, amulets from weasels 
were deemed to have strong magic. The period between 15 August and 8th September was specifically designated for the killing of weasels. <laughs> Weasel season. <clears throat> ah, that's a new one. In Montaigne Noir, France, Ruthenia, and the early medieval culture of the Wends, weasels were not meant to be killed. So there's some disagreement there. According to Daniel Defoe, also meeting a weasel is a bad omen. In English-speaking areas, weasels can be an insult, noun or verb, for someone regarded as sneaky, conniving, or untrustworthy. Similarly, weasel words is a critical term for words or phrasing that are vague, misleading, or equivocal. So there you go. There you go. That's essentially what it is, is I think you look at how a weasel hunts its prey and how it will follow its prey down into the burrow. And then you think about weasel words and somebody acting like a weasel with the truth. And you realize, okay, so they're sneaking like a weasel would down into the depths of the earth because they're after something and they're not going to go after it in the open. They're not a large carnivore. In fact, they're the smallest of all possible carnivores, but they are predatory. And to call somebody a weasel is to say they are being sneaky. They're being uh, deceptive. Enough about weasels. Teenager dies in sand dune collapse in Outer Banks. An investigation continues into the death of a 17-year-old after he became buried under mounds of sand. This is a piece published at AccuWeather.com, where I typically go to get my weather updates. Uh, it's a very sad story, really. A 17-year-old has died after a sand dune collapsed on top of him in the Outer Banks in North Carolina, according to National Park Service officials. The teenage boy from Chesapeake, Virginia, had reportedly become trapped in a hole in a back dune area of the Cape Hatteras National Seashore in Frisco, North Carolina, Saturday. The area is behind the primary dune and is not visible from the beachfront. Emergency crews responded to a 911 call around 2 p.m. after family and friends had gone looking for the teenager and found him buried under several feet of sand, about 520 feet east of an off-ramp. Officials said the adjacent dune appeared to have collapsed into the hole. The incident is still being investigated, but let me just say, as a general rule, when it comes to trenching, when it comes to digging, whether we're talking for fun or we're talking a construction project, be very, very careful with digging that you're not putting yourself in a situation where the earth is going to collapse on you because you wouldn't believe how heavy earth can be when you get several feet of it. It can be crushing and also be very, very careful if somebody finds themselves partways trapped, partway buried in uh, a collapsed hole, the earth collapses in and is partways covering them, be very, very careful in digging them out. Don't use heavy machinery to dig them out and don't use heavy machinery to pull them out. This is a true story from my time up in North Dakota. This happened. I think it was a pipeline that was being built and the trench collapsed on somebody who was in there and he was half buried. And to pull him out, his coworkers thought, well, we'll just get a backhoe and we'll have uh, something tied to him. And 
will pull him up out of the dirt. And in actual fact, what they ended up doing was they ripped him in half. Uh, It's just an awful, awful, awful story. But what had happened in part was that they underestimated how much pressure that collapsed dirt was going to be exerting on his sides and on his torso. They underestimated how uh, hard that soil was going to hold on to him or how strongly that soil was going to hold on to him. Just a terrible, terrible place to be. Uh, My wife and I, we actually knew a young couple back when we were in Montana, uh, when we were attending Glendive Alliance Church, we knew a young couple, newlyweds. I don't even think they were out of their first year of marriage, where the husband passed away after he was doing some trenching, doing some digging on their property. He was trying to build this home for them. And the trench collapsed on him and he he died. His newly wedded wife became a widow, very sadly. And it, you know, it, it just goes to show, all of that goes to show, again, with regards to the risk aversion, risk acceptance. We do need people who are not just taking risks all the time. We do need people around us. If we are especially risk tolerant, we do need people who are more likely to take a look at, okay, well, wait, what about this? Ah, did you consider this? Oh, did you factor this in? Well, what if this happens? Are we mitigating that? Are we properly supporting our trenches, for instance? Are we sloping them outward to mitigate? Are we removing the dirt? Are we cordoning things off, et cetera, et cetera? And I don't mean at all to be critical of the young man around my age who uh, passed away about a decade ago. Uh, His wife, his widow, uh, fortunately, after several years, she was able to remarry, and I'm glad for that. But I say this as a caution to those who are alive, who are with us, especially having so many sons as I do. It's good to be willing to take risks. It's also good. It's wise for you to take a helpmeet who is suitable for you or to surround yourself with friends who are going to look out for you, who are going to point out things that maybe you didn't catch or you weren't paying attention to because you were distracted by the promise of that brass ring or that achievement or that accomplishment or that reward, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Another such story, this one pertaining to a man who was a bit older. So the last story had something to do with a 17-year-old. This one, I believe, pertained to a older young man. Judging by his appearances uh, from the pictures, he looks to me as though he was in probably his late 20s, maybe early 30s. But a certain Eric Walter was backcountry skiing, according to reporting by Melissa Alonzo and Paradis Afshar at CNN, published again at AccuWeather. Uh, An avalanche occurred Thursday, according to officials, and killed an Alaska National Park Service worker, and he was doing his job. He was doing his job and unfortunately was overcome by an avalanche. And I mentioned this also alongside the story of the teenager in the sand dune because it's not just young men who have to be careful about these things. It's also older men. But notice in both cases, this is men. That's not a trivial detail. It's usually men who are more 
risk tolerant than women. And so men typically gravitate towards lines of work and business ventures and jobs and other activities, hobbies, even sports that are more dangerous, more risky. Why? Because of testosterone, because we're men. And in some sense, because we're supposed to be the ones who are primarily going out and providing and protecting. We are supposed to be more risk tolerant. And you might say more dangerous, but it's not a bad thing. It's actually not we as men who are supposed to be more dangerous. It's we as men who are supposed to be asserting dominance over the rest of creation. That's what God told us to be about. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That subduing bit is primarily man's work. The be fruitful and multiply, that takes two, that takes the male and the female, the man and the woman, by God's design. But the filling the earth might be more of the woman's job in a certain sense. The man helps, but it's more the woman's job. And the subduing the earth is more the man's job and then the woman helps. And when marriage is properly calibrated according to God's word and his will and by his design, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Unfortunately, a lot of us are very confused about these things because we're not looking to God's word and we're not, we're not considering what God's design was and trying to honor that. In many cases, in most cases, even much of the American church is confused about this and trying to flatter the broader culture that doesn't know God and trying to mix in ideas that are hostile to the things of God and to the word of God. And we need to be clear. We need to know God's word so that we are able to identify counterfeits and false teaching and perversion and corruption and confusion and folly and yes, even sin. Because we want to be holy to the Lord our God and not made unproductive or ensnared. A couple of additional stories here. One from Carlos Garcia over at The Blaze. Twitter erupts with hatred against Chris Pratt after he says his faith helps him deal with haters online. 2,000 years ago, they hated him too. And I'll read a more extended selection from this because uh, this is interesting and there are some things worth noting in connection with what I was just talking about with men and the valuation of men and women, young and old and in the prime of life. Actor Chris Pratt responded to online hatred by quoting biblical scripture, and that led to even more bilious hatred from many online. Pratt was being interviewed about his last movie, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3, with page 6, when he made the comments, quote, that's nothing new. That's nothing new. You know, quote, if I was of this world, they would love me just like that. But as it is, I've chosen out of this world. That's John fifteen eighteen through 20, he said. That's the way it is. Nothing new. 2,000 years ago, they hated him too. Quote, oh, <clears throat> and this is when he was asked how he deals with criticism. And he said, mostly I ignore it. He says, oh, just how you deal with anything. Like a rhino, stick your head down. You keep driving forward. You have thick skin. And if anyone gets in your way, you stick the horn right up there. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, he joked. That, is that good to have <clears throat> as a joke alongside saying they hated Jesus too? I don't know. 
I'm not so sure, but then I've worked in the oil and gas industry for 11 years, and that kind of joking is very common, right alongside people having a debate about uh, in times, <laughs> chronology, you know, are, are you post-mill, A-mill, A-mill, any mill at all, Bueller, 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 uh, you know, and the next thing you know, the next joke has, uh, you know, something like that, right? Something like the, the bit about the rhino. Quote, when it comes to rejection, I was trained in the crucible of door-to-door sales some 25 years ago, so you can't turn me away. There's no stopping us. When Page Six published Pratt's comments, many of his haters rushed to criticize him for supposedly comparing himself to Jesus Christ. Quote, when is Chris Pratt going to sell all his belongings and give the money to the poor, like Jesus suggests? Or do we just get to skip parts of the Bible we don't like? Asked one critic online. Quote, when you think he couldn't possibly be any more of a prick, he compares himself to Jesus, read another response. Quote, am I being an idiot or does anyone else not see this as Chris Pratt essentially saying, I'm like Jesus, replied another hater. Now, not to put too fine a point on it, but you're kind of making the point. (laughs) You are kind of actually uh, exemplifying what he's talking about here with this mocking and the scoffing commenters, be it known, Jesus didn't just say, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Sorry, commies. That's not what he was getting at. He was not saying everybody must abolish private property and then we'll own nothing and be happy. That's not what Jesus was getting at. And Karl Marx was a Satanist, just so you know. Most communists have been mass murderers, Uh, when they actually get to positions of dominance in countries, look at the fruit of the communistic tree. It's mass murder and starvation and oppression and injustice and not at all what Jesus commanded his disciples. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And that doesn't mean you don't have any responsibility whatsoever, but it also doesn't mean that you can just go and take what somebody owns because they have more than you do because you're jealous But so also another thing about Jesus is he was mocked even as he was crucified, even as he was flogged, he was mocked and scoffed at, oh, here's your king of the Jews. Yeah, king of the Jews, huh? Here's your crown, a crown of thorns. That was mocking. And Chris Pratt does identify himself as a Christian, which means actually little Christ, which originally was a pejorative. It was a way of mocking Christ followers or followers of the way. This is the way before Mandalorian popularized that saying, the way is what they called Christianity. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. And so followers of the way were followers of Jesus before they were called Christians. Christians were called Christians because it was a way of mocking them. Oh, you little little Christs. Hmm? And then Christians were like, yeah, yeah, little Christ. That's the idea. The more like Christ we are, the better. Yep, that's our definition of success. So it's not to hold Chris Pratt up because I'm not a little Prattian. <laughs> I'm not trying to be like Chris Pratt. But I am going to stick up for him here, and I'm also going to say the comments uh, further prove his point rather than something to the contrary, in my view. 
Another piece over at theblaze.com, this one from Courtney Wheel, six-year-old girl, and I apologize on the front end because this is an uncomfortable, very, very uncomfortable uh, story, and it should make you angry. It should make you sad. It should make you confused in some sense, but then if you've been paying attention, you shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be confused at all. Six-year-old girl forced to perform sex act on boy while another classmate filmed report. Parents whose children attend an elementary school in Texas are demanding answers after they learned that a first-grade girl was allegedly sexually assaulted by other students during class. On April 19th, an unnamed six-year-old girl was reportedly forced underneath a desk at South Elementary School in Plainview, Texas, and made to perform a sex act on another student while yet another classmate filmed it on a school-issued iPad. According to a statement issued by the district, the incident, quote, occurred away from the full vision of the teacher, end quote, who was then attending to another group of students. The school apparently learned about the incident the following day after another teacher confiscated the devices of several students who were not performing their assigned tasks. One such device was protected by a password and required the assistance of a technician to unlock. Once the device was unlocked, school officials discovered, quote, inappropriate content, end quote. Now, let me just stop right there. And I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go research it further if you want to. Let me just point out a few things. One, comprehensive sex education is putting books that not only normalize this, they are intended to and predicated on the assumption that we should all believe that children are sexual beings and that a child's human rights are every bit equal to an adult's human rights. And that therefore, since we have said that adults have a right to express their sexuality any way they want to, children therefore also have a right. And for adults, Christians in particular, conservatives in particular, for adults to tell children, no, you can't, no, don't do that, no, don't touch them, no, you can't go off by yourselves. For adults, particularly Christians and conservatives to say, no, that's wrong, is a violation of a child's human rights. That is the claim inherent to comprehensive sex education. It's perfectly normal as a book that is in our public libraries and in our school libraries here in Weld County, Colorado, in Greeley, Colorado, it's perfectly normal, is pornographic. And it depicts explicitly sex acts between men and men and women and women and men and women and every possible combination of people is normalized and it's a children's book. And if it's inappropriate content on a school iPad when one student forces another student and then another student still films the whole thing, we need to decide what side of this issue that we're on. Uh, We need to decide what the standard is. We need to decide what is right and wrong and what is true and false. And this is why we homeschool ladies and gentlemen. And it's not to say that bad things can't happen in a homeschooling environment, but it is to say you don't just wave off complaints about the public education system when these things are being pushed from the federal level, from the Department of Education headed up by 
a Biden appointee, when Biden says there is no such thing as other people's children, and then the state of Washington and other places pass laws, which the Associated Press is saying protect children from their parents, trans children from their parents, which is to say, if the school district or activists in the public schools talk your child into becoming trans or a homosexual or a bisexual or whatever, and you as a parent in those places say, I'm pulling my kid out. Absolutely not. No, you can't do that. Laws are being passed in states like Washington to say that the state can take your child away from you. And the premise is actually the same thing as the premise in what happened in this Texas school with a six-year-old girl. And let me just caution conservatives and Christians on a couple of points. One, if we're not getting our standard of right and wrong, of true and false from God's word, then we are extraordinarily vulnerable. We are building our house on the sand. If we are not getting our standard of right and wrong, true and false from God's word, Jesus said, the man who hears Jesus' words and obeys them is like the one who built his house on the rock. And the man who doesn't obey the words of Jesus builds his house on the sand. When the storm comes, the house gets knocked down around him if he's built it on the sand. If he's built it on the rock, then the house stands. We need to build our lives on what Jesus said. And Jesus affirmed Old Testament when he preached. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And it can be complex for us to understand what that looks like. But before we can even have a hope of applying these things and understanding the character of God and understanding what it means that he says, be holy for I am holy, what is his holiness and what is his standard of holiness for us, before we can understand that, we have to accept that the governing authorities are rewarding those who do what is evil and punishing those who do what is good when the Democrats are the governing authorities and when far too many Republicans are trying to cater to the Democrats and the radical left and the communists, BLM, Antifa, both alike, are communistic organizations. The Democratic Party is increasingly enamored with socialism. Even Republicans are catering to this, caving to this, because they want friendship with the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, according to God. Not according to me, according to God. Don't shoot the messenger, take it up with him. But I bring this up before we talk about the next thing. The next thing is a revisit of the comments by Dennis Prager with Jordan Peterson and Oz Guinness and others talking about Exodus for the Daily Wire. Dennis Prager, as we have discussed on this podcast a number of times now, Dennis Prager said some things which really ruffled feathers for a lot of Christian pastors and podcasters and authors and commentators. Uh, Dennis Prager said some things about pornography that were very upsetting for a lot of Protestants and Catholics alike. And I won't repeat myself in what I've already said about Dennis Prager and what I think he was saying and what I think he was not saying. Todd Friol, aka Wretched, I think is mistaken. I think anybody who 
interprets what Dennis Prager said as praise of pornography or saying that pornography is good. They are not listening closely. They're not listening carefully. Their fight or flight response is kicking in and they are being somewhat hasty here. They're not being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. And there are reasons. There are reasons, but that's no excuse. And I bring up the story about the six-year-old in Plainview, Texas, in part because I listened to Matt Frad over at Pints with Aquinas. That's his show. And then I listened to Gavin Ortland's response to that interview. He wasn't part of the interview, but he did his own video titled, Dennis Prager is Wrong About Porn. And I think that there is some validity to Gavin Ortland's concerns, for instance, about human trafficking, about the effects of the pornographication of society. There is relevance in the story out of Plainview, Texas. You know, that's one of the things. And I'll put links to these two videos. The one uh, heated debate on pornography with Dennis Prager from Pints with Aquinas and the other by Gavin Ortland and Truth Unites is his show on YouTube. I'll put links to both. You can watch the full videos for yourself. But Gavin makes mention of the pornographication of society leading to higher instances of sexual abuse and human trafficking. And he's not wrong that that is a major problem. But then again, we need to understand that as the conversation between Matt Frad and Dennis Prager brought up, what formerly decades ago would have been considered pornographic is now increasingly just normal advertising, normal marketing. And it's in our movies, it's in our TV shows, and it's in our curriculum in the schools. What is now considered pornography is not what used to be considered pornographic. I mean, it would have been, but so would what is in a lot of school libraries, a lot of public libraries, a lot of magazine racks at your Walmart or Kroger. That also would have been considered pornographic decades ago. And it's a difficult problem that we find ourselves facing when we start talking about, like Avin Ortland does, human dignity. And what does it mean to protect human dignity with regards to our sexuality? On the one hand, I think you have the men's rights movement, the men going their own way guys, the involuntary celibate guys, increasingly saying, we're tired of being beat up on. We're tired of everything being our fault. We're tired of being the scapegoats for society. We're tired of that. And no, no, we don't want to hear anything else anymore. You know, some of these men have taken to hating women right back. So the feminists for a long time and still hated on men. And so these men were boys who felt the brunt of that growing up. And now they're going to hate women right back. And both alike, both of those attitudes, the men hating the women and the women hating the men, both alike are as bad or worse in comparison to all of what we would call pornography. Because it's that attitude, actually, at root, that is a rejection of 
God's original plan and design for men and women. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them when he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Be it known that Marx, in his co-authored work with Frederick Engels, Marx was not just interested in abolishing private property in the sense of, well, that's not your factory. That's not yours. You didn't build that, like Obama said. No, it wasn't just economics that Marx was interested in abolishing private property with regards to. Marx and Engels talked explicitly about marriage and the family being redistributed, which is to say that wives would be held in common as well, not just property, but wives in a community, in a communistic society. Wives would just belong to anybody and everybody. You just share your woman with this person and that person, and they share their woman with you and the other guy, and it's not fair. If your wife is prettier than his wife, it's not fair that he doesn't have as pretty a wife as you do, right? See see exactly how when we take an extra biblical idea of freedom and equality, it can corrupt and pervert everything. And too many Christians have been bullied into being silent on the economic front or actively flirting with the idea of socialism, drawing a moral equivalence between confiscation of private property. But they don't even have time to hear what Dennis Prager is saying. If he even starts to say something that would disagree with them on the question of human sexuality, oh boy, they are they are ready to fight long and hard. And my question would be, how many of us really understand that these things go together? These are a package deal. These trends in the pornographication of society and also the rise of socialistic activism, communistic activism. The toughest ever regulations on power plants emissions were announced just yesterday. And these regulations are going to make electricity. If they are not stopped, they're going to make electricity for your home, for my home, heating and cooling for your home and my home prohibitively expensive because the Biden administration is committed to carbon neutrality for the United States of America. Well, what is that? What is that except the Biden administration and the radical left saying, we don't regard you heating your home as belonging rightfully to you. It belongs to the whole world. It's a communistic attitude. What is it that they're doing in the state of Washington when they say, we're going to take your child away from you, parents, if we talk them into changing their pronouns and you say, no, I'm pulling my kid out because that's not somebody else's child. That's everybody's child. It takes a village to raise a child, according to Hillary Clinton. What does it mean for us to protect human dignity and also how do we, and here's here's a big, big question that I see as common to all of the above, and I'm not so sure that most of us appreciate this, which is why I'm saying it. If I thought we all knew this, I wouldn't be saying it. I wouldn't waste our time like that. How do we stick up for human dignity if for years and even for decades, so many pastors have contributed to the emasculation of American men at the behest of feminists in the church and in broader society. 
How do you stick up for human dignity when there is so much social justice tainting the way that American men, men in general, have been treated, talked about, related to, portrayed in the American church for decades? And the reason I ask this is because we come to the question of pornography and lust, right? Because as is mentioned in these two videos, pornography comes from porneia graphia, which is the writings of the prostitutes, allegedly, which is to say these are writings that are intended to uh, drum up business. These are the writings that are intended to actively encourage clientele to purchase the time and attentions of a prostitute. Well, when that's the intent, actually, or that's the history, the etymology, maybe we need to be careful what all we are describing as pornographic. Strictly speaking, is pornography just whatever excites you sexually? If we want to get really angry and be slow to listen and quick to speak and quick to become angry on this subject, well then, we're not going to get anywhere. We need to slow it down, unpack what's actually going on here. One of the things that comes out in the conversation between Matt Frad and Dennis Prager, for instance, is this idea that the problem, the problem with pornography is that it, uh, it objectifies women. But then over the course of the conversation, the question is from Dennis Prager, well, hold on a second. <laughs> He's like, I, you know, I'm married. If I say to my wife, you know, I'm just crazy about your legs. There's such a turn on. Is that objectifying my wife? See, if we don't have a clear idea of what it is that we actually mean by these things and we're overly broad, we might be slipping into neo-Gnosticism, which actually might be feeding right back into the socialist moment. We might be coming to these discussions with a whole lot of assumptions that have an appearance of godliness but deny the power thereof. So an important question to ask is whether or not it would be consistent for us to say, well, the problem with pornography is that it objectifies women, and this is primarily a male problem, but then we're going to turn right around and we're going to say to the men, hey, where are you guys going? Ah, you guys aren't showing up because you just can't handle the truth, because you're a bunch of wimps. Well, there's a tell, right? There's a harshness towards the body which has an appearance of godliness, but it denies its power. And are the men listening if they perceive that the partiality will never find them innocent until they are completely emasculated? What I've observed as somebody who has attended churches all over the U.S., and I've followed closely a lot of the big names in evangelicalism, over the years, as they make comments on various issues, various social issues, cultural issues, one thing I notice again and again and again is that there's a lot of talk directed at men with regards to you need to stop looking at pornography. And pornography is defined very broadly. And it always comes back to what Jesus says 
in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if anyone looks at a woman with lust in his heart, or if any man looks at a woman to lust after her, he has committed adultery in his heart already. That passage is handled fast and loose. And because everybody does it, everybody's given a pass on doing it. But then the same characters who are very conservative, who are very severe, who are very harsh and critical towards the men in their churches for as long as they have them, they'll turn right around. And if it's a different cultural issue, if it's a different problem that they're addressing and they disagree with some more liberal interpretation, they'll turn right around and they'll say, well, you can't play fast and loose with the text like that. And meanwhile, I'm listening to all of the above and I'm thinking, but you just did. If you want to get them to stop, don't you have to stop first? It's clear from the context of the passage that adultery is the taking of another man's wife. Therefore, the woman that a man is looking at so as to lust after her is another man's wife. That's clear from the context of the passage. It's also clear from the Old Testament that to commit adultery has to do with taking another man's wife or some woman going off with a man who's not her husband. That's adultery. That is a capital offense. The death penalty is commanded by God for adultery. And so when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, we need to understand that that is the only sexual sin that makes it into the Ten Commandments. That doesn't mean it's the only sexual deviance or perversion that is a sin, but it is to say it's the only one that makes it into the Ten Commandments. And it's in a category of capital offense, sexual immorality, and not all sexual immorality is in that capital offense category. And the way some pastors, and even maybe most pastors who have talked about pornography in an American context in the 21st century, from my observation, the way that most of them have addressed the issue is to tell every man who's in the congregation, if he's ever looked at porn, even once in his life, and been sexually excited by it, he is an adulterer, which is to say that he deserves death. And then we wonder why the men have left. And if you want to know the truth, I think that a lot of this nonsense comes from a place of egalitarian feminist, uh, radical egalitarian feminist thinking that bubbled up right alongside the women's suffrage movement a hundred years ago, thereabouts, a hundred and some change. Feminism enlisted the clergy of the United States of America to work alongside the women of the churches to outlaw alcohol entirely and to portray all men thereby, you know, we talk about gun control, this was alcohol control, to portray all men in these contexts as being worthless drunks. And then the next thing they wanted after they got prohibition, which was a disaster, by the way, it was an absolute disaster. But before it could prove itself to be the disaster that it ended up being, the very next thing that the women and the clergy in this new alliance that they had formed went about trying to pursue was voting rights for women. And the next thing after that, not long after that, was birth control and abortion And now we're to the point where children are being sexualized in schools 
They're being shown images, cartoons, and literature normalizing homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism. And where are the pastors in too many cases still obsessed with placing the blame on men? Well, if men wouldn't look at porn, then we wouldn't have all these problems. And I'm thinking to myself, the pornographication of society is a major problem. Also, every bit as evil, every bit as wrong and unnatural and a perversion of God's created order is the way that feminism has creeped into the life of the church, the life of the home, the life of our society, demanding something very contrary to both the letter and the spirit of God's word. It's as if so many pastors and so many Christian authors have said her desire will be for her husband to rule over him, but he will rule over her. Now, how about how about we flip that around? And then we act surprised. We act surprised that men are frustrated, disillusioned, checking out of the churches. It's an open secret that divorce laws favor women. The woman gets everything, and the man can be destroyed at the drop of a hat for any reason or no reason whatsoever. And the laws of this country and the courts of this country will just take the woman's side, even if she's the one who was being predatory, abusive, malicious, manipulative. And the sick truth is that in many churches, the pastors and the congregations will also take the woman's side automatically. That's partiality. And that's an inversion of both the letter of God's law and the spirit of God's law. It's an inversion of what God's word says, but it gets worse because what will you hear when many pastors talk about pornography? You will hear pastors literally teasing the idea that, you know, if it's adultery for you to look at a woman with lust, so as to lust after her, if it's adultery, well, then you, man, having looked at pornography and your wife finding out that you looked at pornography, that's you having committed adultery, and therefore she has grounds to divorce you. And again, I say you're playing fast and loose with the truth. You're playing fast and loose with the scripture. Every instance of divorce in the Bible is the man divorcing his wife, not the wife divorcing her husband, not no-fault divorce either, even when it's the man divorcing his wife. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, if a man will divorce his wife, he should give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, if a man divorces his wife, except in the case of adultery, he has caused her to commit adultery. And then Jesus says that Moses permitted divorce because of hard hearts, because of stubbornness, which is to say, even in the case of infidelity, look at Hosea, it's not prescriptive, but it is descriptive of God's patience with us. And the example there is Hosea taking Gomer back repeatedly, and then finally disciplining her out of that lifestyle of being a prostitute. And that is something that doesn't get preached on. It doesn't get sermons, but one passing reference to a man looking at a woman with lust, that can be an entire year's worth of sermons in many American churches, and it's partiality. 
It's wicked and it's corrosive to the moral fiber of this country that we are not using equal weights and measures at all, at all. But it's the rank and file of the men who are told, if you have looked at a woman with sexual interest or you were sexually excited when you looked at a woman, and we all admit that there's sexual immorality being portrayed all around us today, and that's a problem. I agree. But we all agree about that. And yet, if the man looks with lust at a woman, we're saying, well, you've already committed adultery. And so now your wife has grounds to divorce you. If you even looked longingly at another woman, whether she's married or she isn't, you linger just a little too long and your wife caught you looking at that woman. Well, she can divorce you, take half of everything that you have, take the kids, destroy your reputation. You'll get kicked out of the church. You'll be removed from every position of authority that you are in. You will lose all honor, all dignity. You will be destroyed with the blessing of the clergy. And that's not what Jesus was saying. I'm going to play, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you here for a moment, you have heard that it was said, whoever looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery with her in his heart already. And I say to you, if it's adultery in the context of the passage, then this actually has to do with somebody else's wife, which is not to say that it's no big deal if you're looking longingly at other women all the time. That can be sin, whether or not the woman is married. But where this gets really, I think, twisted and corrupted and corrosive, instead of edifying, it becomes an expression of selfish ambition and vain conceit on the part of many pastors who are just asserting dominance over the men in their church. Where this gets really twisted is when even in the context of marriage, you have pastors doing the rabbinical tradition thing where they're going to extend it farther and farther and farther. You know, in Jewish rabbinical tradition, they started debating at a certain point, can a man divorce his wife if she just makes him unhappy for any reason? Like if she burns his cooking, for instance, if she burns supper, can he divorce her for that? And they debated it, right? And all the while, you got to imagine if you're a woman in that context, you're thinking like, man alive, wow, I better really work on my cooking skills. Sheesh. We have in too many cases... This slippery slope, because of the kinds of arguments that are being made and them not being careful arguments and them not being well-informed arguments, we have it being entertained that even for a man to feast his eyes on his own wife, if she's looking rather gorgeous right now and he is sexually excited by her and sexually interested in her, even for him to do that is a sin because he has lust. And what's being misunderstood here has a lot more to do with the Greeks and the Romans thinking about the body in relation to the soul and the heart and the mind, the immaterial part of man versus the material part of man. It has a lot more to do with Gnosticism than it does with scripture, God's word, the law and the prophets and the gospels and the epistles. But see, even here, a lot of men in American churches, if they even dare to say something approaching that on anything pertaining to gender and sexuality and say, well, wait a second, what about these passages here? What about polygamy in the Old Testament? What about Song of Songs? 
What about the way that Esther is described as being a woman who had a lovely figure, a beautiful figure rather, and was lovely to look at? What that means is, in our parlance, if I can translate how we would describe Esther in our context is we would say she was sexy. She was hot. She was a very good looking woman. She was easy on the eyes. Now, I wouldn't say that about women in general, but it is to say that even the passing comment in Esther, chapter 2, verse 7, go look it up, even the passing comment in Esther, if it came from the lips of a layperson or a pastor in the American church today, what would immediately follow would be scandal, upset, anger, accusation, something of a witch hunt. But it goes one direction. All these jokes get made about the pastors today, the hipster pastors, the seeker-friendly pastors, the pastors that want to be you know, really cool and with it, wearing skinny jeans that make their butts look good, essentially, that show off their legs, make their butts look good. What's that about? Oh, yeah, please. Please tell us all about how the women need to dress more, dress more modestly with regards to the current fashion and tell me all about it in your skinny jeans. And here I'm not making an argument against skinny jeans, but there's a partiality. And the excuse will be, well, what are you suggesting? I'm suggesting we consider Esther 2.7. The girl had a good figure and a beautiful face. Or she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. I'm suggesting that for scripture to record that is to say, in the context of her then going through a long, lengthy, in-depth beauty regimen so that she would be selected by the king and taken into his harem, and for that to not be met with anything approaching what happens to Abimelech in Genesis, when God himself speaks to Abimelech and says, don't you dare touch Sarah. She is another man's wife. If you touch her, if you touch her you're a dead man. Nothing like that at all happens in Esther. In fact, God uses Esther having been so beautiful and winning the beauty pageant, essentially, he uses that to save the Jews from the evil schemes of Haman. And in our day, because we're not wise about these things and because there is too much selfish ambition and vain conceit, and there has been too much emasculating of men in the American church, because we're confused about so many of these things and there is so much partiality, it is even suggested by some that for a husband to look at his wife and say, she has a beautiful figure and is lovely to look at, is him objectifying her, and therefore he is, he is lusting after her, and therefore he is sinning because he's objectifying her, therefore he has violated her dignity, therefore that's our argument against porn. Really? Really. How about this? Let's try this on instead. God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God also says, these are sexual sins. Don't do them. If you promote and take pride in and write stories about those sexual sins and share images of those sexual sins and you celebrate those sexual sins and you normalize those sexual sins and you revel in the daytime and you've forgotten how to blush, 
and you're committing those sexual sins that God says are sins, then we say, woe to you, repent, turn away from your sin, be holy for he is holy. But how about let's not make an argument from reason that would say even a man who is married to his wife shouldn't be actually sexually interested in her or sexually excited by her or enjoy her physically. How about let's not do that because that's not in keeping with the whole counsel of God. That's not in keeping with Song of Songs, for instance. It's not in keeping with even what Paul writes in the New Testament. As somebody who is himself celibate, he says, I wish that, you know, speaking personally, I wish that you would remain single like I am. But because there is so much sexual immorality in the world, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband, and they should render to one another their conjugal duties. They should not deprive one another except for a short time to devote themselves to prayer by mutual consent, not one or the other withholding as a way of punishing the other. You don't say, well, because there's so much sexual immorality in the world, I'm going to withhold myself from you because you're you're being tempted over there, and so you can go sleep on the couch. No, that's not what Paul says, and we shouldn't be talking that way either. And what does Paul not say? He doesn't say, because there's so much sexual immorality in the world, if a man even sees a woman and is sexually excited by her, his wife should divorce him and get married to somebody else. What? What is that? What? what? You are being totally disobedient to God's word. When you American churches, American Christians, when you do that, when you American pastors, so many of you, preach that way, you are twisting scripture with regards to human sexuality. And then for Dennis Prager to say what he's saying draws so much fire because it's easy, right? Because this is part of how the people who are championing themselves as the guardians of sexual propriety promote themselves in too many cases. Do nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit. Also, do not fear man who can only kill the body and then has nothing more that he can do to you. Fear God who can kill the body and throw the soul into hell, which is the second death. Both the desire to flatter and the fear of man drive a lot of the response to Dennis Prager. I'm convinced. And some confusion is also in the mix where some of these ideas are not compatible with the whole counsel of God pertaining to men and women and human sexuality and holiness. I'll just say this, one one last thing regarding the valuation of men and women in Leviticus. And then I've got to run. I got to go. I'm sure we can talk about this more on the podcast moving forward, but one more thought on the valuation of men and women, boys and girls and the elderly and prime of life and all the rest. That same recoiling that you instinctively do and the same confusion that you feel seeing that God says, well, the value of a man from 20 to 60 years old is 50 shekels. The value, uh, the value of a woman is 30 shekels. That same recoiling where you say, if this weren't God saying it, I would throw a flag on the play. But because it's God, I'm going to just be really confused and frustrated and uncomfortable right now. That same confusion and frustration is present. It, it's here in spades with regards to what Dennis Prager said in answer to Jordan Peterson's question. And I would just remind us all, James says, 
Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Not many of you should be teachers, for we know that those who teach will be held to a higher standard, both what James says and the passage from Esther and the passage from Leviticus that I talked about in this episode need to be factored into our handling of these matters, these issues. God hates unequal weights and measures. And yet, on the other hand, we have to recognize there's a distinction between men and women. It is not biblically defined ever adultery for a married man to look at an unmarried woman with sexual interest. Otherwise, it would have been adultery every time one of the patriarchs or kings in the Old Testament took a second wife. Therefore, it is bad handling, improper handling of the biblical text for us to say that a married man, even just to get excited looking at a woman who is not his wife, who is unmarried, is cause for his wife to divorce him. That is improper handling of the biblical text. And it is driving men out of the church, and it is affirming the feminist, radical egalitarian spirit of this age, and even the furor directed at Dennis Prager, the upset, the anger, the outrage, the pearl clutching at Dennis Prager is a bad testimony. You could say, well, if I don't speak to this, if I don't answer Dennis Prager, if I don't harshly condemn his remarks, well, that's going to hurt my testimony. No, no, no. This is very much like the virtue signaling on the woke business a few years back, where all of a sudden these big names were saying, I am part of the problem. Like, <laughs> I I am part of the problem because I am a white man. I am a white pastor. I am part of the problem just by virtue of being a white man. You weren't expecting to pay a cost when you said that. You were only expecting to get a benefit. And you're being pharisaical. You're praying on a street corner for everybody to hear. You're announcing your giving with tambourines and trumpets. You're fasting and trying to look extra gloomy so that you'll be seen by people and thought extra pious. Take care, brothers, sisters. Take care. Because what I'm seeing here, when I'm looking at at least the conversation between Matt Frad and Dennis Prager, I'm seeing the kind of conversation we need to have more of if we're going to figure these things out. And I'm seeing the kind of conversation that we're having too seldom. And what's right around the corner is a lot of confusion where women who have been in admin jobs are going to lose their jobs to AI. And if they haven't prepared some other career path, they're going to just be very lonely. And then what? And at the same time, we're seeing the rise of AI-generated materials. And we're also seeing the development of very sophisticated robots. And we're also seeing a lot of transgenderism. And we're seeing the normalization of pedophilia. And we're seeing a lot of chaos and confusion. And it is not getting better. It's getting worse and worse by the day, week, month, and year. Pearl clutching is not going to get us out of this. Pearl clutching in very partial ways playing fast and loose with the biblical text, if we even read it at all. That's how we got into this mess in the first place. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.